Hi, and welcome to episode 71 of 5 Minutes of Rum. Notes on rum, a few minutes at a time. My name is Kevin Up the Grove. Spirit producers, like all sellers of things, need to get noticed. In retail stores, shelf placement is king. Being at eye level and within reach obviously increases the likelihood of someone plucking a bottle from the shelf. Now, hand-in-hand with shelf placement is having an attractive box or label or cover. Today's rum, Hamden Estates Rum Fire, is fighting on both of those fronts. At this point in time, at least, it's not a fixture in stores across the land, though better stock stores uh, are picking it up and starting to uh, uh, stock it. And in all candor, the graphic design of the label on the Rum Fire bottle is the type of thing that normally tells me to keep looking at other bottles on the shelf. And I probably would have were it not for the glowing comments from those in the rum community whose opinions I respect. And so based on personal personal recommendation, I kept an eye out for this rum and obtained a bottle a few weeks back so I could talk about it here. This episode also features a book called Rum the Manual by Dave Broom. And all told, we'll end up with Rum Fire served five ways using four different mixers. Guys, it is hot out there and we need an easy cocktail or four cocktails. I'll have more inspired recipes for this rum in future episodes, but for now, it's hot like fire. Oh, and before we get officially underway, a quick shout out to listener Alex, who introduced himself to me in the wine and spirits section at Powell's Books in Portland, Oregon uh, this past weekend. Alex, if I made a mistake with your name, I'm super embarrassed. I'm bad with names, but knowing I'm bad with names, I wrote it in my notebook right away. So hopefully I didn't forget it or wrote it down incorrectly. Uh, Best of all, there were props on saying hi. In those situations where I see someone personally that I recognize from something I listen to or watch, I usually don't have the guts to introduce myself, but I like talking to listeners of the show, so thanks for saying hi. And speaking of the show, uh, let's get into Rum Fire. Rum Fire is Jamaican overproof in the vein of a J. Ray and Nephew, uh, which is in episode 11 if you need it. Uh, if you're a rum fan in the U.S., that's the immediate parallel you will think of because the U.S. market of Jamaican overproof rum brands is relatively small. It's pretty much J. Ray and Nephew, and that's it. And Rumfire isn't shy in their all-caps lettering on their bottle, uh, describing it precisely as Jamaican White Overproof Rum. What you'd expect from this rum is a pungent, high ester, indeed funky rum that will give you the same burn as it, uh, or will give you some burn as it operates at 63% ABV or 126 proof if you prefer. Now let's see how that works out before getting into the production and the distiller itself. Now I have a glass here as I want to do while recording an episode, uh, Rumfire Appearance. Um, as I mentioned in the, in the, uh, in the open, it's a fairly nondescript bottle, the screw cap. Uh, there is some unfortunate graphic design on the label, uh, but I'm going to move past that. Uh, there's pictures of it in the show notes. If you haven't seen it before, the rum itself is clear, um, as seen through the clear bottle and poured into a glass, there is no noticeable change in color. So that's something I'm certain I would have picked up on if I'd seen a change in color. Aroma. Uh, This is one of those rums that announces its presence as soon as the cap is removed. You're not sneaking this past anyone unless they're 10 days deep into a head cold. And even then, this is probably going to shake that head cold loose. Uh, Drawing in your nose, um, once it's poured in a glass, you're immediately greeted with uh, fruit, uh, funkiness, and a a stinging of the nostrils. uh, It does really announce its presence right away. Now, remember to smell the rum from the glass with your mouth open so you can get a more full sense of the uh, the bouquet. And if you smell it from the neck of the bottle, the aroma is more medicinal. So it's not getting as much, as much exposure through the neck of the bottle. It's forcing through a smaller uh, opening. It hasn't gained the air, so it doesn't quite open up. Um, if I try to play, um, like play the name the fruit game, I get the obligatory, uh, I would think, banana, pineapple, and maybe some other tropical fruit like mango. The astringency is at its peak right after you pour it a swirl it when it's been agitated with the air. Now, in terms of taste, 
Now, after all that aggressive nose, you may have a little trepidation to taste, but fear not, the rum itself, while assertive at 126 proof, isn't terribly harsh. There's the initial sense of heat, and then comes the fruit and the middle part. Um, on the fruit comes on the middle part of the swallow. Um, there's also an earthiness I can't quite articulate, um, but it's it's there present in the rum. And for as bright and fruity as the nose is, the taste of the rum uh, gets back closer to the soil. It's not an agricole. It's not something like that, but it is something closer to the ground. Uh, to me, it felt like a medium-bodied rum to start with, but left a heavier impression. I think it's probably kind of a lighter-bodied rum, but my immediate impression, again, was that it was medium-bodied and a fairly heavy rum. Um, the finish, the finish is a, a nice slow burn. Um, I felt at first as though it was a quick finish, but after a second and third sip, I started to notice the rum really hanging around in my throat at a low murmur, like really kind of just below the radar. Uh, I came to really appreciate it over the entire pour. So as I sipped the rum, uh, it stayed with me for a while, which is a really good, uh, nice way to have a, a rum finish. Now, after about half of my pour, I added a very small piece of ice to it to see how it would change. The first thing I noticed is that it uh, it was like taking sandpaper to any rough edges of the spirit. So it kind of you know rounded it off. Uh, the character di itself didn't change a great deal, though some more of the peppery notes made themselves known. Um, and I got a little bit more idea of the tannin elements of the rum. On top of that, the juiciness of the fruit from the nose started to rise above the earthiness. So all in all, this may be the rare occasion where I would take my pour with a small ice cube because I like the small differences that it made uh, to the rum once it uh, once it opened it up in a little bit. Sum up, uh, rum fire is an interesting sipping rum. I can see at times where I would like to sit down and slowly take some neat, but not on a regular basis. Um, this rum on the other hand, seems to really like it wants to be mixed, um, either simply, like we'll get to later in the show, or in a more complex cocktail, like we'll get to in a future show. Um, obviously, this rum is a competitor to J. Ray for your overproof Jamaican rum dollar. I still really like both. Excuse me, I still really like both, and plan to keep both around. Though to be candid, I really only use J. Ray and Falernum, and I use it with J. Ray and, or with Ting to make a J. Ray and Ting. So I'm going to try and work on expanding my repertoire with this style of rum. So now a little bit more on the production of the rum and the distillery that produces this rum. Uh, Hamden Estate is located in the Trelawney Parish of Jamaica and was founded in 1753 as a sugar plantation. The specialty of Hamden Estate is pot-stilled rums of the heavy body variety. And until recently, the rums produced by the distillery, well, I mean, they still do, but uh, their business exclusively until recently that was to produce rums that were sold in bulk and used by other manufacturers, for example, in, for use by other manufacturers in their rum blends. So in episode 64, when talking about the Maison Jamaican XO rum, I mentioned the company E&A Shear rum blenders from the, Nether, from the Netherlands. Uh, E&A Shear is said to be a customer, uh, one of many, this is just one example, of the rums produced at Hamden Estate using these pot stilled rums as part of the custom blends they do for their customers. Uh, Smith & Cross is also a mixture of Hamden rum with uh, rum, uh, other Jamaican rums. Now, selling these specialized pot still rums in bulk has been their stock and trade for generations. Until recently, that was their entire business, though. In the last few years, they've started to bottle a few varieties for sale, including Hamden Gold and the rum fire that we're talking about today. Hamden last changed owners in 2009 when the Hussey family acquired the estate and reinvested uh, many dollars back into their production and facilities to uh, to modernize them a little bit and bring them uh, back into uh, uh, a more heavy production. Now, the production itself, um, what other details are available? So uh, a 2012 article on the rumcollective.com, which is linked in the show notes, the author of that article, Nick Ferris, describes the production field facilities 
Um, and note that at the time of Rumfire's San Francisco launch at Smuggler's Cove in 2007, Nick Ferris was now the U.S. importer of Rumfire, so apparently he was very impressed with what he saw in 2012. Uh, anyway, so what he noted in that article was that fermentation does involve dunder as well as liquid from the producer's muck pits. Uh, dunder, if you remember from our previous episode on Jamaican rum, one of them, uh, it's the residue left on the pot still after, or left on the still after distillation. And using dunder helps yeast and, and production of esters that the um, for the rum itself. Now, the muck pit produces liquid used in fermentation by combining the remnants of the previous distillation as well as some overripe fruit and other parts unknown. Um, the legend, never mind. Some of the sugarcane juice produced at the site is also used in fermentation to develop those high esters that are uh, rather than just used uh, for the alcohol. The rum itself is a molasses-based rum. It's fermented for seven days and then rested for another seven before moving on to distillation. Hamden has four pot stills on property. Um, in case it's not obvious by this point, Rum Fire is a 100% pot still rum. Now, when the finished rum, while the finished rum is likely rested, I don't see any evidence online that it's aged, nor do I find any evidence in the bottle that it's aged in oak and then, fil um, and then filtered. So I think this is a, a distilled rum that's uh, rested in probably in some sort of stainless steel or other non-reactive uh, 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 vessel, uh, unlike oak, um, and then bottled after that. Rum Fire... Uh, was first bottled in March of 2011, so the rum isn't exactly new to the market, but safe to say that distribution wasn't robust, at least in the U.S., until more recently. Uh, where to find this rum? So speaking of distribution, earlier in 2017, there was a concerted effort to raise the profile of rum fire on the West Coast. Uh, I saw it being used at Jason Alexander's Tacoma Cabana Bar. Uh, Smuggler's Cove had the uh, San Francisco launch of rum fire in April of 2017, and Marie King brought it into the Tonga Hut recently. Uh, luckily, I saw it in the wild shortly thereafter at Costa Mesa's High Time Wine and Spirits and picked up a bottle there. The standard 750 milliliter bottle starts at around $28 at KL Wines. If that's available to you, you can have them ship it. Um, and it's about the same price range as the J. Ray Nephew. So look for it at your local specialty stores or online, or better yet, go to a uh, local store and ask them if they can bring it in. Ask if they can ask their distributor to, uh, to bring it into the store. And that goes for other rums you want to see. It won't always work, like they won't always be able to get it. Uh, but it's good to have your local rum distributor trying, or excuse me, your rum store try and get it from their distributor and help these rums get a little bit better uh, foothold uh, in the stores that are local and maybe get them introduced to a few more people. So let's talk a little bit about the book Rum the Manual by Dave Broom. Um, how did I come across this book? This book was published on March 7th of 2017. And uh, a little time before the publication, a listener had asked for my thoughts on this upcoming title. I think the question was on Twitter. Um, I wasn't familiar with the author, but a quick search found that Mr. Broom had written several quote-unquote The Manual books, and the rum version was soon to be published. So you can also find like Gin the Manual by, this, by Dave Broom as well. Now, I thought the cover was a bit, la li bit lackluster, but the design was in keeping with his previous books. And hey, I learned a long time ago not to judge a book by its cover, but unfortunately, I didn't quite transfer that lesson over to like Spirit Bottles. Uh, the same way I had for books. Uh, so please see like the aforementioned Rumfire bottle issue I had. Oh, and the price was a very reasonable $12 from Amazon. There's a link to that book in the show notes. And the list price was only $20, and this was for a hardcover book. So it certainly seemed like low risk and, and worth a try. Now, um, as I mentioned, Dave Broom has written other books in the quote-unquote manual series, Whiskey and Gin, as well as numerous other books on spirits and wine. Uh, and though he wasn't on my personal radar before this book, he's been writing about spirits for over 20 years for various publications to go along with his books. Um, he's certainly, uh, he's current, excuse me, he's currently editor at scotchwhiskey.com 
and certainly seemed like he had uh, a lot of experience in uh, in writing about spirits. Uh, so it wasn't a situation of going into a book where I wasn't sure the content was good. It's just I hadn't hadn't really been on my radar before. So as far as the actual manual, um, I think it's a great primer on the spirit of rum. Uh, it's a good pickup for learning more about the spirit. Uh, a 25-year veteran of the rum world may not have any great revelations from this book, but I'm certainly learning things, and the author's word, or excuse me, the author's words are well sourced. Um, now, Mr. Broom's approach in the book is not um, the history of rum and 100 recipes, and the way he went about talking about individual rums is really what piqued my interest, particularly starting on page 58. Um, he does actually talk about the history of rum, but that's not the main thrust of the book. So, in, on page 58, that's marked how to use this book. This is where Dave Broom lays out his methodology for tasting and judging the 110 or so individual rums that are to follow in the book. Uh, he really breaks down rum tasting to the basics and lays out an even playing field for trying large amounts of different styles of rums. Each rum is tasted neat and is included in the book on its own merit, uh, irrespective of how it plays well with the mixers that we'll get to. Now on page 66, you'll see a flavor map. This is a really interesting idea. Um, not that it's necessarily unique, but I just like that it was drawn out, and I feel like it's a good ex uh, good exercise to try at home. Uh, now, a grid is laid out. Uh, if you picture this, it has oaky and rich at the top of the grid, light and fresh at the bottom of the grid, and then crispy and dry is on the left, and soft and sweet is on the right. Now, the rums are all placed in this grid based on their basic characteristics. So, as you might expect, an aged Diplomatico falls into the top right, combining oaky, rich, and sweet. Uh, or maybe you're more of a fan of Plantation Jamaican 2001, then you'll find yourself at the top left of the grid, still oaky, but leaning towards more dryness. And the farther you get to an extreme, the more single-minded a rum will be. So as an experiment for the home listener, you might want to draw up your own map with these coordinates and then plot a few of the rums in your collection and see where they end up. Maybe you'll find that your tastes are all across the board, or maybe you'll find that your rum collection at home is in a particular quadrant. Um, I wouldn't recommend necessarily doing this with all the rums at home over the course of a one or two evenings, Kind of a long-term experiment that you're going to want to spread out over a few weeks. Uh, but you may, you know, you may be interested to find where your tastes lie compared to where you think your tastes lie. Now, finally, and most germane to this episode, Dave Broom applies a standard set of four basic mixers to each rum and then applies them again, or four mixers and then applies them to each rum, uh, minus the agricoles. The agricoles are handled separately, and we're not going to talk about that in this episode. Now, each of these four mixers is used as a two-to-one mixer, uh, so two-to-one mixer-to-rum ratio, meaning two parts of mixer to one part of rum, and then the results are sampled. So for every non-agricole rum, there is a score per mixer, as well as a basic cocktail for each of Mr. Broom's categories. Uh, note, these are not Martin Kate's categories from his book, Smuggler's Cove, but you'll get the idea of what uh, Mr. Broom is going for. Um, heck, you'll know from studying that Martin's book which rums fall into which category, uh, without even, you know, sort of paying attention to the categories that are rum the manual. Um, for white and overproof rums, the cocktail that Dave Broom advocates for is a daiquiri. Seems pretty natural. And then for every other, it's a rum old-fashioned. Again, keeping it basic, wanted to highlight the rum. This isn't a cocktail book. This is a book about how to sample rum and how to approach rum. The mixtures themselves are coconut water, clementine juice, ginger beer, and cola. Now, inspired by the format of Dave, Dave Broom's Rum the Manual book, let's work the progression of mixers and see how each one of them works with rum fire. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I will continue to work on cocktails that feature rum fire, uh, more complex cocktails, but sometimes you just want a simple way to enjoy a spirit. Something between sipping it neat and something where you have to uh, bust out 10 ingredients for a complex cocktail. Uh, also, did I mention already that it's hot and that's making me lazy? Good. 
Um, so please note that all of these, again, um, as advocated in the book, are mixed at a two-part mixer to one-part rum ratio. Now, first up, we have coconut water. In this case, I'm using a, uh, a brand called Zico for my coconut water. Uh, first of all, what is coconut water? Well, pretty much says it right there in the tin. It's water from a coconut. Um, and you really can't hardly walk around California without, without seeing bottles of this stuff now. Um, this is a pairing that's uh, designed to add a light sweetness because coconut water is lightly sweet and a little bit of nuttiness. So how does it play with this rum? Um, so I mix this with, uh, again, two to one. Uh, there's a picture of this in the show notes. Um, when I nosed the cocktail or the, you know, the mix, it seemed like, you know, pretty faint, not a lot of strong aroma. And then on the taste, uh, it was a fairly light taste. The rum takes over the coconut water, so it kind of overpowers it a little bit. Um, still some of the nuttiness from the coconut comes through. Um, it was fine. It didn't quite all the way come together for me, but overall it wasn't a terrible pairing. Um, and I probably should have mentioned this before when, uh, in run the manual, the author has each one of these scored out of five. So for, he tries each rum with all these mixers and then scores it out of five. Plus he does the cocktail. Um, so my score was two out of five on this one. This is where I went through and, and did my own tasting of this. I felt this was good, but probably not something I'd revisit too often. Now, next up, uh, was ginger beer. So ginger beer, um, what is ginger beer? This is almost always a non-alcoholic carbonated ginger flavored beverage. Uh, various brands have various ginger strengths. Uh, Fever Tree is one of the strongest. Um, today I'm using Reed's and it's their stronger, quote unquote, stronger ginger beer. Uh, they're promoting that as a stronger ginger beer, quite possibly because across the market, the tend is to have stronger ginger flavors. Uh, so how did this one fare with the rum? So I, I thought this was probably second best favorite out of the ones I had. A really nice, refreshing nose. I think the ginger beer was able to stand up to the aggressiveness of the rum fire. Uh, the drink itself was fresh and bright. Uh, the flavors kind of moved together. Uh, you did get a sharp bitterness from the ginger, which was lingering a little bit on the tongue on the swallow. Uh, rum fire as an entity was still evident. It didn't get lost in there. Uh, but it, it, a little bit of the rum's funkiness kind of got, um, you know, came through, but it, it, you know, it, it tames it a little bit. So it's not quite as aggressive as drinking it neat, um, and still pretty good. Um, gave that one personally a three out of five. That is one that I would consider revisiting. Although generally I have uh, ginger beer with a little bit darker of a rum, um, but I can see where this one will work pretty well. Now, next up is rum, fire and clementine juice. So what is clementine juice? So this is the one in the book that really intrigued me the most um, because I saw everything was sampled with clementine juice. Um, I finally now, after getting this book, had a reason to pick up a bag of those small citrus that haunt the produce aisle at your local grocery store. Uh, this is a citrus that balances tart and sweet, but what actually is a clementine? Uh, it's a variety of a mandarin orange, much like a tangerine. Uh, it's small and seedless and easy to peel, which I'm sure contributes greatly to its popularity. It was created or discovered, depending on where you read about it, by Marie Clement Rodier, a French missionary in Algeria over 100 years ago. That's how it gets the name Clementine. Clementines are seedless, although through cross-pollinization, they can gain seeds. So how does it work with the rum fire? Um, you get a, a light citrus note on the nose, um, and then the rum and citrus really blend together well. This was the one that came together completely for me and, and that I really enjoyed. Uh, the clementine helps highlight the pineapple notes from the rum. So think about the rum when you sample it neat. You had a little bit of pineapple notes on the nose from the esters and a little bit um, when you added a little bit of ice to it, you got a little bit of pineapple notes from the rum itself. 
the Clementine, for some reason, probably there's some science reasons there, but it just bonds really well with what this rum is producing and kind of gives you a whole pineapple bomb. Not like you're drinking pineapple juice, but that's the, the overwhelming element that you pick up uh, if you pick up individual fruit elements. So to me, this one worked really well, gave this one a five out of five, meaning that's the one I would probably make more often. Um, I, you know, I probably, that's, that's something I would work in a regular rotation is Clementine juice and, and the rum fire. And overall, just picking up a bag of Clementine juice and spy, and trying that with different uh, rums that I have around the house has really been an interesting experiment. Um, it works really well in some rums that you wouldn't would think to uh, to combine with uh, fruit juice like that. So I would encourage you, go get that $5 bag of Clementines from the grocery store and mix that two ounces to one ounce of uh, with one of your rums around the house and then another one and see which ones work. It'll, it'll work more often than, not, than it won't, actually. Now... The last pairing was uh, with cola, in this case, Coca-Cola. Um, and what is Coca-Cola? Well, I'm not going to go into that. It's, you know, everybody knows what a Coke is. To me, this is the much maligned rum and Coke talk, rum and Coke cocktail. It's not necessarily my favorite, uh, but I wanted to run some experiments on these different rums. And so I picked up a, spic- a six pack of these small Coca-Cola cans that make you feel like a giant when you hold them in your hand. Um, unfortunately, when I, tr- excuse me, unfortunately, when I tried that with the rum, um, the rum was very much still evident in a, uh, when I mixed it with the uh, cola, um, but I'm, I got notes of like plastic and bitter sarsaparilla when I drank them together. The flavors for between the Coke and the rum were actually really just butting into each other and getting in the way of each other and not playing nice together. So this was, uh, to be perfectly candid, one I did not finish. Um, I poured it down the sink and probably would have, I, I'll generously give it a one out of five although I wouldn't make it again, so I probably should give it the N slash A as in not applicable and do not do. Um, I, I have um, mixed some rums with some Coke or with Coke before to some great effect. This is not one of those cases, and I, I certainly would not recommend uh, picking up rum fire and mixing it with Coke, although your mileage may vary. I don't want to tell you how to enjoy it. Now, lastly, because I've compared this rum a few times to J. Ray and Nephew, I probably should have tried it with Ting. Um, but I will eventually, I just don't have anything right now. Um, so that's, you know, for future use. That's it for the show. Thank you for listening. Show links are up on the five minutes of rum website. That's number five minutes of rum.com. The show is also on iTunes as five minutes of rum. Don't forget to like, and subscribe. The show is also on Twitter as five minutes of rum and also on Instagram as five minutes of rum. That's the at symbol number five minutes of rum. Please send in any comments, corrections, feedback, and requests via the 5 Minutes of Rum website or on Twitter or on Instagram. And now, go get some rum.